Leonid Andreev by Thomas Seltzer from the drama, a quarterly review of dramatic literature, number thirteen, February nineteen fourteen. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Bologna Times. Leonid Andreev by Thomas Seltzer. The rise of Andreev was unusually rapid, even in an age of such precipitate changes as characterized the Russian Revolution. Scarcely more than ten years ago, Gorky addressed the following question to the Moscow courier: Who conceals his identity behind the pseudonym of Leonid Andreev? The reply was: Leonid Andreev. In eighteen ninety eight, the courier published his first story, Bragamont and Garaska. In January nineteen o two, the Abyss appeared, and in the August of the same year, in the Fog. These two stories forthwith carried Andreev's fame from one end of Russia to the other. Their instantaneous and sensational success won for the hitherto unknown author almost as much attention and adoration as Gorky himself was then receiving when at the high water mark of his popularity as literary hero. The decade since the publication of the Abyss. Has been marked by important and far-reaching events for Russia. It was in that period that the Russian government suffered defeat at the hands of Japan, and that the Russian people suffered defeat at the hands of their government. After the glowing hopes of victory in the struggle for political freedom and social betterment, after an actual momentary taste of that freedom, the forces of reaction triumphed. And the best elements of Russian society sank into profound apathy. Many of these, who had given themselves up completely to the fight for emancipation, who had sacrificed their careers, homes, and all, who in fact had entirely effaced their personal selves in that generous enthusiasm and devotion to a cause which is peculiar to the Russian, now in the bitter reaction of disappointment. Converted their zeal for the common good into self-indulgence and extreme individualism. At present, there are signs indicating that the Russians are recovering from their lethargic and morbid state. Their natural idealism seems to be returning, and it looks as if they were getting ready to start a new fight for the liberation of their country. But the years of post-revolutionary reaction. Have cut their marks deep into the life of the people, and not least felt was the effect produced upon the literature of the period. For in no country is literature so much a part of life as it is in Russia. In no country does it so faithfully reflect the ideas and the spiritual and material conditions of the people. Nowhere is literature taken so seriously, and nowhere, therefore, does it wield so great an influence. Hence the fitful changes that Russian society has undergone in recent years, the confused and chaotic condition of its ideas and ideals are truthfully mirrored in its literature. The bold, defiant note of revolt, the confident trust in the future which Gorky has introduced, and which was the chief characteristic of the literature of the last decade of the nineteenth century, no longer suited the mood of the vanquished. Revolutionists, Gorky ceased to be a hero. New and strange gods arose, whom the Russian intelligentsia fervently worshipped, each in turn. Artsybashev, with his novel Senin, which, with its glorification of the sexual appetite, as generally interpreted, swept the young Russian generation like a holocaust. Merezovsky, and his school with their. Reactionary religious mysticism in the name of culture, Valery Bryosov, a wondrously artistic nature who, when not contemplating the cheerful prospect of the destruction of the universe, takes flight from the misery of this world to a world of his own creating, a sort of realistic romantic world of marvelous beauty, and Fedor Sologub, another poet of great merit. Who sees in death the only good in life? There are whole groups of other writers representing every current in European literature, from that of the most rigid idealism down to the extremest decadence. 
with all this chase after new literary heroes through all these frequent changes in literary fashions andreyev has maintained his position as russia's leading story writer and dramatist and just as gorky's name might stand for the epoch in russian literature covering the last decade of the nineteenth and the first half of the twentieth century so andreyev's gives its character to the literature of the subsequent period down to the present time as yet there is no evidence of a decline in his popularity though it was predicted years ago even by competent and favorable critics he has himself told the story of his life in a brief sketch of which the following is a translation i was born in eighteen seventy one in oral and studied in the gymnasium there i was a poor pupil and in the seventh form was always at the bottom of my class for conduct i got only four and sometimes as low as three the pleasantest times that i passed when in the gymnasium i recall them with satisfaction to this very day were the intervals between the hours the so-called shifts and also those rare occasions when i was sent out of the classroom in the long empty corridor there was a sonorous silence playing with the monotonous sound of footsteps on both sides were doors closing off the classrooms full of people a ray of sunlight a free ray would burst through a crack and play with the dust raised during one of the shifts and not yet settled all this was mysterious interesting and full of a peculiar hidden significance when i was still in the gymnasium my father a surveyor died and left me in poverty at the university i suffered extreme want the first year in st petersburg i even went hungry but not so much from real need as from youth inexperience and ignorance of how to utilize superfluous pieces of clothes even now i am ashamed to think that i could go hungry for two days while i had two or three pairs of trousers two overcoats a winter and spring overcoat and the like i finished my course of study at the moscow university here i was materially better off the comrades and the committee helped me but in other respects i have retained a pleasant recollection of the st petersburg university the student body there is more differentiated and among more sharply defined and distinct groups it is easier to find suitable companionship in january nineteen o four i tried to shoot myself but failed the consequence of my unsuccessful attempt was penance in church imposed on me by the authorities and heart disease not dangerous but obdurate and troublesome at that time i made one or two unsuccessful attempts to write and i met with some success in painting from which i derived a great deal of pleasure i have loved painting ever since i was a child i painted portraits to order at one dollar and a half and two dollars and a half apiece when i grew proficient i received five dollars and even as high as six dollars a portrait in 1897 I received my diploma and became a lawyer's assistant, but I got off the track from the very start. I was asked to report court cases for The Courier, a newspaper just then beginning publication in Moscow. I had no time to work up a law practice. All in all, I had one civil case which I lost at every point, and a few criminal cases which I defended without pay. In 1898, at the request of the editor of the courier e d novick i wrote my first story an easter story and since then i have given myself up entirely to writing it has been of a varied enough character i used to report cases in court and write bulletins under different pen names now i devote myself exclusively to hell's letters it is rarely that i write articles of a general nature Maxim Gorky helped me a great deal with his advice and instruction, which I have always found excellent. As a matter of fact, the youthful Andreev tried suicide not once but three times. He had another narrow escape from death in 1907. This time the attempt on his life was made by two assassins. Andreev's 
persistent hold upon the people has often been made a reproach to him without the willingness to follow the changing literary fashions he could not it is said have preserved his popularity undiminished there is no doubt that the range of his interests is extraordinarily wide and the themes of his numerous works correspondingly varied he responds with peculiar sensitiveness to all the momentary ideas moods and emotions by which educated russia is affected in nineteen o four a war breaks out between russia and japan and andreyev writes his red laugh a ghastly delineation of the horrors of war the revolution finds its echo in most of the writings of nineteen o five particularly in his first drama to the stars then when the government succeeds in crushing the people with its black hundreds he gives us sava nineteen o six a drama in which the anarchist hero seeks to annihilate everything to lay the earth bare for the world is so bad that no rehabilitation is possible before the old is entirely cast out of the way king hunger written in nineteen o seven describes the uprising and the defeat of the hungry workers and the underworld in anathema nineteen o nine he turns to the mystical and religious trend that suddenly manifested itself among some of the russian intellectuals and his latest works such as the dramas professor storitsyn and yekaterina ivanova in which the personal interest of the characters constitutes the leading feature while the larger problems are either altogether wanting or occupy a secondary position are but so many proofs that the russians have grown temporarily weary of the contemplation of the big cosmic problems and are willing to stay a while on earth with nothing but human beings for their company these are but a few of the questions dealt with in andreyev's writings in fact his works are a faithful transcript of the ideologic history of his day they voice young russia's despair doubts and tribulations occasionally perhaps its ideals and aspirations also but to make this a reproach against andreyev is indeed reversing ordinary values and making what is in his estimation an author's highest merit nothing is so easy as the charge of catering to the changing public taste as a matter of fact andreyev is a true child of his age the problems of his age are also his own individual problems he not only records them but he fills them in himself often divines them when they are but vaguely shadowed forth in the public consciousness and gives them form and substance that he touches the mainsprings of the russian life of to-day appealingly interprets modern russian society and stirs it in its vital parts is shown by the remarkably spontaneous response that all his most important works have called forth the impression they create is without a parallel in the literature of any other country george bernard shaw is not so much a sensation in england as is andreyev in russia the publication of each important story of drama of his has in succession proved an event the storm center around which raged fierce oral and written debates the russian magazines opened their pages to voluminous expository and polemic treatises of the significance or insignificance of the last word spoken by andreyev strangely enough the author who has been accused of constantly turning from one subject to another in order to satisfy the demand of the fickle public is also described as a writer obsessed with one idea it is true that all his resourcefulness with all his variety of matter and method there is one note running through almost all of his works in many this one note grows so loud as to drown all the other sounds like a wagnerian motif it is iterated and reiterated until it seizes hold of you and never lets you go this theme is death tolstoy said of andreyev quote, he wants to frighten me but i am not frightened the truth is he does not want to frighten he is himself frightened and because he is frightened 
with good reason and because this reason applies equally well to you and me his dread is easily communicated to every mortal who has not attained the superhuman serenity of tolstoy when he made that remark a humorous writer in life called andreyev grimma's death and aidko a russian critic seriously says of him in all the range of our literature past as well as present he is the gloomiest of russian authors considering the tragic character of russian literature in general and considering further that the heart-wringing terror-raising dostoevsky is one of its main representatives andreyev then holds a record he devoted two of his best stories lazarus and the seven who were hanged entirely to this theme of death lazarus is written in andreyev's usual impressionistic style and is full of symbolism when lazarus rises from the grave after having lain dead for three days he becomes the very embodiment of death whosoever meets his gaze feels its quote, destructive force unquote. but for andreyev the terror of death lies not merely in its being the cessation of life still more horrible is its incomprehensibility its riddlesomeness the impenetrable darkness stretching beyond it none who met lazarus gaze were ever able to explain the terror dwelling immobile in the depths of his dark pupils neither those who were forever broken by it nor those who found in the original springs of life which are as mysterious as death the will to resist its power lazarus looked at a person calmly and simply with no desire to conceal yet with no desire to say anything his look was cold as of one infinitely indifferent to the living the sun did not cease to shine when he looked the fountain did not cease to play and the native sky remained as pure and blue and cloudless as ever yet the man upon whom his enigmatic gaze fell no longer felt the sun no longer heard the playing of the fountain no longer recognized his native sky some wept bitterly others tore the hair from their heads and senselessly cried for help but to most it happened that they began to die quietly and listlessly and kept dying for many a long year dying before the eyes of all withering and fading and gloomy like a tree silently drying up in stony soil and the first those who cried and acted as if they were insane sometimes returned to life but the others never wisdom is powerless against lazarus fatal look i know everything lazarus says the proud sage what fearful things can you tell me how will you terrorize me a short time passed and already the sage began to feel that the knowledge of the terrible is not the terrible itself that the sight of death is not death itself and he began to feel that wisdom and foolishness are alike before the infinite for the infinite knows them not and the boundary line between the seen and the unseen between truth and falsehood between above and below disappeared and his formless thought hung suspended in emptiness then he clutched at his gray head and cried frantically i cannot think i cannot think not all however succumb to the look of death in some life is stronger and triumphs to such belonged emperor augustus you have killed me lazarus he cries almost overcome this cry recalls him to life and he is saved he remembers the people whose shield and protector he was and who needed him no you did not kill me lazarus he said firmly but i'll kill you go here we see that for all our author's pessimism death is not always the supreme and final power certain forces at the command of the superman seem to be capable of coping successfully with it this idea recurs in andreyev's works under various forms in the seven who were hanged death is treated in quite a different aspect not so much in a philosophical presentation of the problem as in a psychologic and realistic study five of the seven condemned to death are political offenders two are common criminals 
the theme of the story is the way in which each of them receives the death sentence what their inner experiences and feelings are in the interval between the sentence and the execution and how they meet death in the wonderfully realistic pictures of the seven andreyev reveals at length that power of which we catch only occasional glimpses in his other writings stripped of his impressionism andreyev appears as a master not of abstractions not of symbols as in his other works but of the individual human character the individual soul and the concrete personality the seven who were hanged is a human a fearfully human story though we are introduced to the characters only when they are about to die we learn to know them intimately and follow their remaining fortunes with interest here we have pure and unadulterated that russian realism which finds its highest expression in tolstoy and which makes literature so awfully like life here the two russian authors so different in the quality of their talent and in the methods they pursue almost meet andreyev's the seven who were hanged and tolstoy's three deaths might have come from the pen of the same author another theme which bulks large in andreyev's books is loneliness ever so many of his characters are afflicted with that malady they are deathly lonely in the city they seek to escape from it in the country in the country they seek to escape from it in the city vain effort they can't escape it it is in their constitutions the crowd the city only intensify their agony merely serve to emphasize their awful loneliness the intensified loneliness in the city is fully worked out in a short story the city as the lonely hero petrov sits in his room he feels that each man passing by in the street is a world by himself with his woman whom he loves with his own joys and sorrows each one is a phantom appearing for a moment and disappearing again unrecognized unknown and the more people there are who do not know each other the more terrible is the loneliness of each in the dark noisy nights petrov often felt like shrieking with terror like slinking away somewhere in a deep cellar and being altogether alone then he could think only of those whom he knew and not feel so infinitely alone in the midst of crowds of strangers thus the size of the city and its large population became a source of terror to him there was something obstinate unconquerable and cruelly indifferent in that vast herding together of people in that bigness another indictment of the city is its leveling effect its dissolution of individuality most vigorously depicted in that peculiarly subjective representation of the city the curse of the beast i am afraid of the city i love the wild ocean and the forest so the story begins at the same time the hero is forcibly attracted to it the call of the city proves too strong and he hurries thither to drown his loneliness and become one of its little waves yet he soon grows lonely again the numbers do not relieve his loneliness they make it only the more oppressive what are the millions of people but a repetition of one and the same individual there are two million human beings here repeating two million times the self-same i the city produces fatal tragic sameness where there should be difference all lose their eyes in it because each is compelled to crawl into one and the same form so disgusted does the hero of the story become with this disindividualizing action of the city that he is pained to think that human beings must have any similar attributes at all he is pained that everyone must have a nose a stomach and must think and feel according to the same textbooks on logic and psychology we have seen that on the one hand andreyev has command over a wide range of subjects and that on the other he seems to be attracted nay obsessed by one or two ideas which appear and reappear in almost all his works but that involves no contradiction 
despite the variety of his topics there is one point of view from which his work is done and it is this point of view which running like a thread through all his creations unifies them and gives them meaning and significance it is this point of view also from which his favorite subjects are treated so that through it they assume universal importance at the conclusion of his sebastopol tolstoy speaks of the absence of a hero in his book but he continues the hero of my story whom i love with all the powers of my soul whom i have striven to reproduce in all his beauty and who always has been is and will be beautiful is truth in a modified form andreyev's hero is the same name me the name cries anathema to someone guarding the entrance to the beyond light the path for the devil and for man all in the world want the good and they know not where to find it all in the world want life and they find only death the name the name name me the name of goodness name me the name of eternal life i am waiting andreyev forever asks this question how shall we make life livable how reconcile our feeling of what life ought to be with the evils which fill the world andreyev contrary to the general notion does not i think hate life he loves it it is because he loves it that all the misery and wrongs and ills of the world so appall him he wants to solve the riddle what does it all mean why after a wretched life such as the average life is today such as the life described in his drama the life of man comes death it is not death per se then not a morbid fancy such as those in which poe so loved to indulge for their own sake that preoccupies andreyev's mind andreyev dwells on death because he desires eternal life just as he dwells on the horrors of life because he wants the good his whole literary activity is an endeavor to solve the conflict between reason which condemns life and feeling which affirms it considered in this way andreyev's works from the first to the last form an organic unit and show a continuous growth along the line of this central thought i shall endeavor in the remainder of this paper to trace the development of andreyev's view of the world his weltanschauung from some of his typical plays his very first play to the stars 1905 turns upon this conflict between life as it is and the refusal of reason to accept it sergey timofsky a celebrated astronomer has withdrawn entirely from the world and lives in his astronomical observatory perched somewhere high up in the mountains down below on the earth a bloody revolution is going on in which his son nikolai and other members of his family are fighting but he remains unconcerned he has turned his back on the earth with its senseless evils and lives a cosmic life among the stars he seeks to find the meaning of life away from the world away from the dark shades of the earth its vain cares death injustice misfortune vain cares asks one of the characters sardonically so if a new napoleon should arise tomorrow a new despot and grip the whole world in his iron fist would that be a vain care too yes i think so and when his son is imprisoned having narrowly escaped being shot to death he remains just as serene how can i cry in despair he says over the death of one man when in the world a man dies every second and in the universe probably a whole world is destroyed every second sergey timofsky has escaped from life on earth because life on earth is senseless man thinks only about his life and about his death that's why life is so terrible for him that's why he feels as dull and tedious as a flea that has strayed into a marble vault to fill out the terrible void he invents with vigorous intellect a lot of beautiful things but in all his inventions he speaks only about his death only about his life and his terror grows he is like a keeper of a museum with wax figures yes like a keeper of a museum with wax figures by day he talks to his visitors and takes money from them 
and at night all alone he walks about terrified among the dead the lifeless and the soulless if only he knew that life is everywhere so he has taken refuge from the museum of waxen figures and found life in the great cosmic hole he has learned to hear the song of the stars they sing and their song is mysterious as eternity he who but once hears their voice coming from the depths of boundless stretches of space becomes a son of eternity yes a son of eternity as man will be called some day but for a while tomovsky loses his superman attitude when he learns that his splendid son has turned an idiot through the outrages committed upon him in prison he yields to almost normal human emotion soon however he regains his self-composure and again mounts his exalted heights where there is no misfortune no death nikolai didn't die he is in you in me in all he says to marusya his son's fiancée only the beasts die those who have no faces only those die who kill not those who are killed those who are killed live forever there is no death for man no death for the son of eternity in contrast to tomovsky marusya surrenders completely to her despair and can find no comfort in the all-embracing yet extra-human philosophy of the superman a cursed life she cries where then is the god of that life where is he looking a cursed life to melt in tears to die to disappear why live when the best perish when the beautiful form of nikolay is broken do you understand father there is no justification for life there is no justification for it yet despite the evils of the world she cannot abandon life she must go back to the earth the earth breathes dread and sorrow but i was born of the earth and i bear her sufferings in my blood the stars are foreign to me i do not know who dwells there like a wounded bird my soul falls again and again to the earth i'll go i will keep like a sacred relic what is left of nikolay his thought his love his gentleness and the drama ends this way timofsky with his arms raised to the stars i greet you my distant my unknown friend marusya with her arms extended to the earth i greet you my dear my suffering brother tomovsky's wife oh my darling son my darling son to the stars then merely puts the question puts it definitely and squarely but does not pretend to answer it it is a broad question to be sure what is life what is its meaning how make it endurable how reconcile the evil in the world with faith in life which is necessary to give it a meaning but it is a question which constantly preoccupies andreyev domovsky thinks he has found an answer in a sort of negation of the world a world of abstraction but marusya is a stranger to his world the son of eternity is a mere phrase to her she does not feel him with her heart and so though her reason pulls her away from the earth her heart attracts her to it and she obeys the stronger force for the mother such a struggle between reason and love does not even exist she implicitly obeys the all-conquering maternal instinct oh my darling son the next play sava 1906 which appeared only 4 months later is artistically a far superior piece of work technically to the stars can scarcely be regarded as a play it is rather a series of conversations flowing along easily enough and interestingly enough but not connected by any action or plot even in the modern sense of the word plot in fact all the action there is happens elsewhere not on the stage and is only talked about in the play one of the leading characters nikolay who never appears in person all he is and all he does are conveyed indirectly sava on the other hand is a play well knit together it has plenty of action 
all bearing naturally and directly upon the central plot and the interest grows steadily until the strikingly powerful denouement in the last act the characters also are carefully drawn each stands out as a vivid well-defined personality the more important ones sava his sister olympiada and kondrati revealing themselves in all their strength and weakness the minor ones drawn in a few broad masterly strokes though not devoid of philosophical import sava may be enjoyed simply and plainly as an ordinary play sava is an anarchist and has come to the conclusion that the only way of regenerating the world is by making a clean sweep of everything by uprooting the entire old fabric laying the earth bare as he says killing off obnoxious officials singly as mere terrorists do is futile because no sooner is one tyrant removed than another arises in his place so the destruction must be undertaken on a huge scale as a preliminary to this he starts out with a rather innocent plot to blow up a wonder-working icon of the savior in a famous monastery at a time when large crowds of pilgrims shall have gathered there for a holiday by a series of explosions of this nature he hopes to destroy the superstitious prejudices of the people making them see that dynamite is stronger than their god and that man is stronger than dynamite then they will realize that the kingdom of their god is at an end and that the kingdom of man has come his plan miscarries its failure giving the monks an opportunity of practicing still further deception upon the people by working on their superstitious gullibility while sawa on being discovered as the author of the plot is killed by a mob of pilgrims the play is among andreyev's best works and deserves fuller treatment than is consistent with the scope of this paper it has been put on the stage in berlin and vienna but its production is prohibited in russia about seven months after the appearance of sawa came the life of man thus three of the plays upon which andreyev's reputation as a dramatist in no small degree rests were crowded together in a period of less than one year november nineteen o five to september nineteen o six the life of man is one of the boldest and in the opinion of the writer one of the most successful attempts of its kind in dramatic literature it is abstraction in art raised to the highest conceivable power andreyev set himself no less a task than to write in this one play consisting of five scenes and a prologue all that the title signifies the life of man of every man it is meant to comprise all the essential elements that enter into the average human life like an algebraic formula it can be applied to every special case in fact in external workmanship it strongly suggests a mathematical formula it is precise accurate and stiff as a paradigm scene one the birth of man and the mother's travail scene two love and poverty scene three a ball at man's scene four man's misfortune scene five the death of man in each scene you find what you expect there are no surprises there must be none for it is the life of the average man but the throb of life is there as truly as in a character of shakespeare or dickens or any particular individual of your literary or actual acquaintance andreyev has the peculiar power of re-embodying the disembodied of making the spiritual tangible the abstract concrete he himself calls it the neo-realistic drama what peculiar virtue must reside in a name the neo-realist in the character of andreyev simply goes ahead and quietly does what the futurist so loudly professes but fails to perform look and listen you who have come here to laugh and be amused there will pass before you the whole life of man from his dark beginning to his dark ending thus opening the play someone in gray forecasts the life of man in one brief paragraph 
being born he will take the form and the name of man and in all things will become like other men already living and their hard lot will be his lot and his hard lot will be the lot of all human beings inexorably impelled by time he will with inavertible necessity pass through all the stages of human life from the bottom to the top from the top to the bottom limited in vision he will never see the next step which his unsteady foot poised in the air is in the very act of taking limited in knowledge he will never know what the coming day will bring what the coming hour the coming minute in his unseeing blindness troubled by premonitions agitated by hope and fear he will submissively complete the iron trace circle foreordained man appears on the scene as a young man poor and starving but despite his suffering capable now and then of forgetting his misery happy in his youth and in the love which he and his wife bear each other he has lost his father in his early childhood and has had a hard struggle making his own way through school and college now he is an architect unable to obtain employment suddenly his work gains vogue he grows prominent and rich the next scene represents a ball given by man in his sumptuous house of fifteen rooms the cold formal atmosphere in the medium of wealth and luxury contrasts sharply with the genial warmth of poverty in the former picture in the next scene he has grown poor again his home is neglected only a couple of rooms being occupied the rest remaining empty and being infested with rats and as the last crushing blow his good son is treacherously wounded by a bad man and dies the reader will have noted the autobiographical character of the first part like man andreyev through the early loss of his parents had a hard struggle with poverty from his boyhood on and then jumped into fame as suddenly as man the play is as compact in structure as it is rich in symbolic meaning very curious as contrasting with the impression of the extreme modernity of the drama are the crude and primitive methods which andreyev uses without the least scruple in the second scene man's wife indulges in a long monologue to tell the audience the past history of the hero and in the fourth scene an old servant is conveniently made to talk to herself and blab out all that has happened since the ball at man's but these crudities far from jarring seem to fall in quite harmoniously with the general atmosphere of the play which is all in the region of the primitive the life of man again puts the emphasis on the question of the meaning of life the riddling nature of it is here personified in the figure of someone in gray though man's constant companion nothing definite is known about him whence the indefiniteness of his name i don't know who you are god devil fate or life though man's constant companion he stands by looking on with cold indifference no matter what happens and every appeal to him falls upon deaf ears it will be remembered how andreyev speaks of the cruel indifference of the city it is but one of the aspects of the cruel indifference of life in general which he pictures in various forms here it is summed up and concentrated in someone someone becomes the symbol the incarnation of this indifference the mystery of life and death and the indifference of nature is the wall against which human reason has been knocking in vain which it has never succeeded in penetrating again and again the mystery is dwelt upon what does it all mean how take life it is the thirst for a weltanschauung that so characterizes the moderns hitherto non-existent says someone mysteriously hidden in the infinity of time neither feeling nor thinking and known to no one man will mysteriously break through the prison of non-being and with a cry announce the beginning of his brief life in the night of non-existence a light will go up kindled by an unseen hand it is the life of man behold the flame 
it is the life of man coming from the night he will return to the night and go out leaving no trace behind he will go into the infinity of time neither thinking nor feeling and known to no one the indifference of fate to men's desires running parallel to this mystery is brought out with equal force and insistence it is not in answer to the prayer of man's wife that he was relieved of his poverty and given affluence his fate had been decided independently beforehand she knows not says someone immediately after her prayer that her wish has already been fulfilled she knows not that this morning two men in a rich house were bending over a sketch by man and were delighted with it and when man swallowing his pride goes down on his knees for the first time in his life and prays that his son may be spared again no heed is paid to his heaven-stirring appeal events take their inexorable course regardless of human wishes man has fallen into a sound sweet sleep deceived by hope he knows not that in a few moments his son will die in mysterious dream fancies a picture of impossible happiness arises before him the pessimism of the life of man is even more pronounced than that of to the stars the meaninglessness of existence is the more accentuated in that it is exemplified in a life by no means below the average in its share of happiness and yet what does it all amount to man departs leaving no trace the fashion has changed his work is no longer wanted he seems to be entirely forgotten even before his death with what eagerness he clutches at a mere straw of hope that his work will continue to live wife i saw a young artist near that house a house built by man he studied it carefully and made a sketch of it in his sketch-book man ah why didn't you tell me that it's highly significant highly significant it means that my ideas are accepted and handed down by others and even if i am forgotten my ideas will live it is tremendously significant and again he recurs to it at the moment it seems to him so significant it has sent a ray of brightness into my heart but what is the net result what kind of showing does man's life make when the balance is struck and the final accounting turned in defeat he withdraws from the battlefield vanquished and slinks away to die in loneliness in the cellar of a saloon here is the summing up of it in man's curse i curse everything that you have given i curse the day on which i was born i curse the day on which i shall die i curse the whole of my life i fling everything back at your cruel face senseless fate be accursed be forever accursed with my curses i conquer you what else can you do to me with my last thought i will shout into your ass nine ears be accursed be accursed the curse is an acknowledgment of material defeat but it also signifies spiritual victory the spirit of man remains unbroken with my curses i conquer you spiritual victory the all-conquering human spirit is to atone for the ills of outer existence it alone vindicates life and gives it that meaning which is not to be found in the external world of the senses and without which it is intolerable some such faith andreyev must have always had traces of it rather faint to be sure are discoverable here and there it could not have been very strong it was not a dominating note but a timid voice of weakly protest in an overpowering chorus of condemnation for a long time andreyev seems not to have been able to arrive at a direct affirmative answer to the question of the worthwhileness of life apparently he vacillated between his faith and its awful alternative sometimes leaning to the bright side sometimes to the gloomy side though never completely losing hope in the possibility of some favorable solution in the life of man the dismal note predominates 
and the saving faith scarcely shows itself in to the stars on the other hand despite the skepticism the other side is given a fair hearing the justification of life is found in the superman's power to rise superior to the evils of the outer world just as in lazarus augustus by his superman strength is able to subdue the influence of the look of death moreover some day all will be children of eternity as the astronomer says that is all will be superman and life will be vindicated for all but the first time andreyev meets the question is life worth while with an emphatic and unequivocal yes is in his drama anathema gradually by painful struggling and searching andreyev appears to have worked his way to this position and anathema therefore represents the highest and most positive stage in the development of his thought though in a religious garb anathema is but a variation of that theme which as we have seen forms the kernel of andreyev's works anathema who is none other than the devil appears before some one watching at the gate that divides off the world accessible to reason from the region in which dwells the origin of all being the great universal intelligence and asks him to open the gate for an instant that he may take a look at eternity i'll become a god he says i'll become a god i have been wanting to become a god ever so long he crawls on his belly imploring someone even if he has no heart he has reason which is seeking the truth here am i at your feet open your face to me but for an instant as brief as a flash of lightning you refuse then name me the name of him who is behind the gate does it not consist of seven letters of six of one name me but one letter and you will save me from eternal torture failing to get a satisfactory answer anathema descends to the earth declaring that to prove the injustice and the meaninglessness of life he will give david leiser a poor unfortunate jew wealth power and fame he will make him a great man living a life such as by all the rolls of reason should result only in the general good and in the highest good of david himself but which as he knows from the way of the world will lead to david's destruction and to much evil he will show by david's career the nothingness of human existence he will proclaim through david's mouth the truth about the destiny of man the six scenes following the prologue are taken up with david's life how anathema made him the heir of millions and how instead of using the money for himself he gave it to the poor and to the children and david leiser's name spread far and wide and he was honored and revered above all and the report went abroad that he could even perform wonders and people came to him from the ends of the earth to worship him and to be healed but when he had given away all his money and had no more to give the people turned against him crying that he had betrayed them and stoned him to death armed with this evidence from the life of david who because of his material limitations is unable to help the people in the way they want to be helped and need to be helped and is therefore killed by them anathema again ascends to the confines of the rational world and demands give me the name of him who brought about the destruction of david and of thousands of people i am anathema and i have no heart my eyes have been dried by the fires of hell and there are no tears in them but had i any tears i would give them all to david i have no heart but there were moments when something living stirred in my bosom and i was frightened can a heart be born i saw how david was killed and with him thousands of people i saw how his spirit black and pitifully shriveled like a worm dried in the sun was hurled down into the source of non-existence into my abode of gloom and death say was it not you that killed david in someone's answer to this question lies the whole significance of the drama it is the most direct and the most definite expression of andreyev's religion david has achieved immortality and he lives immortal in the deathlessness of fire david has achieved immortality 
and he lives immortal in the deathlessness of light, which is life. Still, Anathema continues to press his questions. Did not David love? Answer. Did not David give away his soul? Answer. And did they not stone David, who had given away his soul? Answer. Not having satisfied the hunger of the hungry, not having restored sight to the blind and life to those who died innocently, and having produced dissensions and disputes and cruel shedding of blood, for the people have already arisen against one another and commit violence, murder, and robbery in the name of David. All this being so, did not David proclaim the impotence of love, and did he not cause great harm, which can be counted in numbers and measured with measures? Yes, someone answers. David did what you said he did, and the people did what you accused them of having done, and the numbers do not lie, and the scales are true, and every measure is that which it is. But not with measures are measured, nor with numbers are counted, nor with scales are weighed the things that you, Anathema, do not know. There are no limits to light, and no definite bounds to the fire's flame. There is a red fire, there is a yellow fire, there is a white fire in which the sun would burn away like straw. And there is still another, an unseen fire, the name of which no one knows, for no bounds are set to the fire's flame. Killed in numbers, dead in measures and in scales, David has achieved immortality in the deathlessness of fire. Anathema is hardly recognizable as the devil. He bears but slight resemblance to the conventional spirit of evil. He is not the tempter in Goethe's Mephistophelian sense, nor in that same sense is he the spirit that denies. He is a new creation in literature, an original conception of Satan. He is the spirit of investigation, the scientist. He wants proofs. He wants to be shown. He cannot believe without observation. He is reason without feeling. He has no heart, and he therefore cannot feel his way to faith. He cannot feel that human life justifies itself and is founded upon a rational basis. But he burns with a desire to find out. He is consumed with a passion for truth. Oh, for one peep into eternity! And if he tempts to do evil, He does so to gratify this ruling passion, not out of original sin, not out of a desire to destroy. And if he is a skeptic, it is also because of his passion for truth and not from a desire to deny. Andreev's devil is the passion for truth. Who loves truth more than anathema? Why is anathema grieving for the truth? I am weary of searching. I am tired of living and being tortured in a vain chase for that which eternally eludes. Give me death, but do not afflict me with blindness. All who strive for truth, who hold reason in esteem, are his friends. He constantly appeals to them as those who love the devil. But because he can see only with reason, he is destined never to know the truth. Anathema. Tell me. Will Anathema ever see the gate open? Will I ever behold your face? Someone. No, never. My face is open, but you do not see it. My speech is loud, but you do not hear it. My precepts are clear, but you do not know them. Anathema. And you will never see, and you will never hear, and you will never know. Anathema. Unhappy spirit, deathless in numbers, eternally living in measures and in scales, but not yet born for life. For a picture of the world as a veil of tears, there is in the whole of literature scarcely the like of anathema. And when one tries to analyze, one hardly knows how the effect is produced. Surely not by the ordinary means of the drama, for it can be scarcely be called a drama. It is a succession of pictures, and for the general impression, it would make little difference if, with the exception of the prologue and the last scene, their order were reversed. So it is futile to judge the play by ordinary standards. If we did, the verdict of absolute condemnation would be easy and unmistakable. But Andreev wrings pity from our hearts and touches us with wonderfully warm emotions in behalf of poor humanity. Let not critics step in where angels fear to tread. The pathos of the drama proper is as great as the extraordinary grandeur of the prologue and the finale. 
the little play here given is one of those humorous bits that andreyev now and then throws off in his happy moments they come to him so rarely that when they do come they seem to burst upon him like uninvited but welcome guests the pretty sabine women needs no commentary it is as clear as a story by mark twain and equally pure fun of course it is not without its lesson and not without satire how can a russian writer ever quite forget himself to that extent the lesson is direct action and what political actionist however extreme would not vote with andreyev if as a russian he decides in favor of direct action against legalism End of Leonid Andreev by Thomas Seltzer